0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and hey, he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And I'm actually a little starstruck with our current guest,
1: Jason Walkup.
0: Jason is the founder and co-CEO of Mind Body Green, which is one of the largest and most influential media brands in the wellness space. And he's also the host of the Mind Body Green podcast and the author of Wealth, How to Build a Life, Not a Resume, and his new book, which he co-authored with his wife and co-CEO Colleen, The Joy of Well-Being: A Practical Guide to a Happy, Healthy, and Long Life. So, Jason, thanks for doing this today.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Big fan of your show. So such an honor to be here.
1: Well, Jason, thanks. And Colleen was going to be here, of course, uh, and she couldn't be.
2: I know, my better half. Childcare snafu, unfortunately, but comes with the territory.
1: Well, no worries at all, and it does come with the territory. Maybe to jump in here. So you've written with her this fantastic book, right? The Joy of Well-Being. And there's a line that stood out for me early on, so bear with me while I read from it. You write, Our goal is to provide you with the raw material you need to weave well-being instead of chase wellness. So you're drawing a distinction there between well-being and wellness. And I wonder if we could pick up that as well as distinctions later on between different healthy, wise ways to pursue goals and not-so-healthy, not-so-wise ways to pursue goals in general. So what's the distinction you're charting between wellness and well-being?
2: So I'm glad you picked up on that because that, that's a big one for Colleen and I. And, you know, my buddy Green is coming up on 14 years and we've come so far and it's been incredible to watch. However, we do feel like the word wellness has been hijacked to some degree. And what do I mean? It feels like the echo chamber of the internet, specifically influencers have made wellness to some degree unattainable unsustainable self-care it feels like if you're not taking your nightly epsom salt bath or your gratitude journaling <laughs> you know if your feeds are filled with these images and it's yeah. you know this kardashian level wellness if you will it feels out of touch specifically for anyone who's working or has a family so i think that's like one camp and then you've got another camp another corner of the wellness world where you have all these incredible biohackers with their science and their wearables. And, you know, I've got some of them. This is my passion. This is my job to understand everything that's going on and live this way. And even I don't have the time or the resources. And, you know, the the analogy I'll use is it feels like we're trying to put on the frosting without baking the cake. hmm And I like in baking the cakes, the fundamentals, you got to have the fundamentals. And And I love the frosting, but without the fundamentals, without baking the cake, you can't put on the frosting. And we feel like wellness has become all about the frosting. It's become unattainable, even for people like me. And this is my job. I really appreciate you saying that.
1: I think about this, the proverb that the most important thing is to remember the most important thing, the fundamentals, the cake. Right there. And you have this other great line early on in your book that I'm going to read again. And you write If you only remember one sentence from this book, let it be this one. Any healthy change you make has to be a joyful one. All right. And of course, I really appreciate that emphasis myself because I think it's through beneficial experiences and their repeated internalization that we grow the good inside. And most beneficial experiences have a positive valence to them. Not all of them, but most of them. So first, I I wondered if you could speak to the value and why you had that be the single sentence to remember that changes in the direction of greater well-being are really skillful as they are joyful. And then I'm going to have a follow-up question about what about those useful, necessary steps toward baking your cake of overall well-being that at first you kind of don't want to do and are not so joyful, but they're necessary for you.
2: So I think about the evolution I've seen in the past 14 years. And I'm going to start with, I think, the 1.0, which is longevity, where science is advanced, where we can do certain things that could extend one's lifespan. For example, we can get you to 100 years old. And then 2.0 was about health span. Do you want to live to 100 and then have the last 30 years of your life be a poor quality of life because you're not mobile? No, you want to be healthy and fit. And in a perfect world, you spend 99 years, 11 months, three weeks, and call it 29 days doing all the things you want to do, being healthy and fit, and you die very rapidly, perhaps overnight. And for us, it's about joy. And wouldn't you rather be happy along the way. I don't think anyone would want to sign up for being fit and healthy and mobile, but being on their seventh marriage, being in a place where your friends don't even bother to check into you, but being healthy and fit, living to a hundred. And we like the word joy span and Mm. getting back to the, the why I think, why do we do the things we do in health and well being? And I think ultimately it's, it's, For us, it's motivated by joy and getting to that place. And I think reframing the conversation is something that's really important to us.
1: Does your word joy, as I think it does probably, encompass less intense emotions like satisfaction, contentment, well-being in a sense, just a sense of overall all rightness?
2: I think it's all of the above. And I think it's taking some of the pressure off yeah you know often with specifically fitness i'll use this as an example january 1st comes we set lofty goals we i think this is hitting on your other question we maybe set ourselves up for a protocol a practice that takes us from zero to 100 in day one and we overcommit in terms of duration and it's not sustainable and it dies you know what? January 13th is National Quitters Day. We make it 13 days. <laughs> Why don't we make it 13 days? Because we make commitments that we have no, that, that one, we don't have the time for, and two, we don't like. And we're adding and not editing. And I think a lot of the conversation is about adding to your life, where to us, it's about editing. And it's not shooting for this, you know, pie in the sky, if you will. I, I like the cake and the pie metaphor, you know, maybe I'll use a cookie later. We believe we can get most people 80% there you know, in terms of their maximum well-being and, and having a joyful existence with minimal effort to some degree and having a lot of fun along the way. Otherwise, I think there is so much pressure to get there really fast. When I think about
1: well-being, and we're going to get into the eight layers of your cake, if you will, that are very substantive. It's that part of well-being comes from reducing what drags it down and promoting, second, what builds it up. So you have these two aspects. And there are certain aspects of promoting greater well-being that involve letting go. I think of the proverb that wisdom is choosing a greater happiness over a lesser one it's easy to choose happiness over suffering but mm-hmm. it's those lesser happinesses that are immediately gratifying in the moment so there's a giving upness sometimes or there's a stepping out of certain relationships or certain friend groups that just drag you down or don't promote the kind of positive beneficial well-being practices you want to cultivate so there's a there's a process that doesn't necessarily feel that joyful sometimes with certain of the factors that promote well-being. And I wondered if you could speak to that.
2: So this is a good one. I have a couple of thoughts. So one, I believe in building practices that you do enjoy. Someone asked me a question on a show that I did recently. And the question was, what do you eat that's healthy, but you really don't like? And I said, nothing.
0: Mm.
2: You know, there, there's enough great food out there that, that's healthy that you can figure out, that you can yeah. enjoy. You know, my wife said, Well, Colleen said, Well, sardines. I'm like, Well, I actually like sardines. <laughs> she, you know, she, she doesn't understand that one. I do too, actually. Although
1: I feel bad for all those little fish, but yeah. And
2: and they're so nutrient dense, and oh, you know, it could go on and on at sardines. And so I like to reframe it in, you know, as we refer to as the, the wellness wave. And what do we mean by that? We mean by starting small, getting a win. And building momentum. Mm-hmm. Taking the stairs is something I really like now. And I have a rule where if it's less than five flights, I take the stairs. And once a week in our building, there are 22 flights. I go up 22 and down 22. And, you know, for some people, maybe taking a flight or two is all they can do and just do that. So I think anyone who's able-bodied can take the stairs. There's, there's no time. I think it's building that confidence, that momentum, those wins, rather than going straight at it and being so uncomfortable in a practice that it's very hard to get comfortable when it's so uncomfortable for so long when it comes to, I think, specifically fitness and nutrition.
0: Yeah, I think a great question to ask yourself is what is the joyful version of this thing that I want to do? maybe to kind of summarize some of what you're saying here, Jason, where there is a unenjoyable version of pursuing well-being. Absolutely. There is an unenjoyable version of going to the gym or doing your nutrition or whatever. But hey, maybe there's an enjoyable version of it too. There's often a restriction mindset, a restriction holding around these things, right? What are the things that you're cutting out? As opposed to perhaps more of a pursuit orientation, like what are the things that you're moving toward? Mm -hmm. And what I can say in my own life is that when I've been able to find the enjoyment in whatever it is that I'm doing, an orientation toward my goals, a pursuit mindset, maybe a a way to put it is feeling a little bit more like uh, I'm the one chasing rather than I'm the person being chased, the better my outcomes get around almost everything.
2: 100%. Yeah.
0: So quick question about this then. We've already talked about a bunch of stuff and in the book you explore kind of eight key topics and as you said mind body green has been around for a long time you've talked to a lot of people on your podcast i think like 200 300 experts you could have focused on almost anything in this book <laughs> you know you could have picked any topic out there so i'm wondering how you chose the eight topics that you ended up exploring in the book
2: sure so to your point we could have wrote a book that was thousands of pages on nutrition and probably gotten, yeah. gotten nowhere. Yeah. There are lots of different directions we could have gone, but I think where we started was the big objection to health and well-being is I don't have the time and I don't have the resources financially. And, and even I have those objections again and I'm embedded in this space. And so where we went with the pillars are what is really important? Where's the science? Where are the experts? And can someone actually do this? Mm-hmm. And we started at the top with breath. We're breathing constantly. We breathe 17 to 30,000 times a day. If you don't breathe for a few minutes, you'll die. So just pause there. You know, we could talk about if I don't work out for a couple of days, you're fine. You don't work out for years, you'll be fine. You don't breathe for a couple of minutes, you die. The next one's sleep. That's the big one. If you don't sleep for probably a week, you're probably also on the brink of, of death as well. And so start with breath you know, we're breathing all the time. It doesn't require extra effort. I don't need to set aside time to breathe. It's just part of of my existence on this planet. And most of us are not breathing well. 50 to 80% of adults have dysfunctional breathing patterns and they're breathing through their mouths. And if you think about return on investment in terms of my time, there are all these incredible downstream effects with breathing. Hmm. One, you're, you're breathing through your nose, you're filtering out all the bad stuff, bacteria, viruses, whereas mouth breathing, you kind of suck it all in. You increase your CO2 tolerance, increases your oxygen absorption, and your physiological resilience. You're more likely to be in fight or flight mode when you're breathing through your mouth rather than your nose. That can lead to chronic stress. That's a big one in terms of mental health, dealing with stressful situations. The nitric oxide, that's a big one. Nitric oxide increases circulation. It's good for your cardiovascular system. And so if you just stop there, it also benefits your sleep in a huge way. Breath is a good one to start with. And it starts with breathing in your nose. And it's for people who struggle with mouth breathing, it's maybe a little bit more difficult, but it, it is just so powerful. And we breathe literally every second of every day.
0: It's also very attached to one of the things that we talk about on the podcast regularly, which is mindfulness practice and meditation. The first focus of concentration is almost always the breath, yeah.
2: And it's free. Yeah, and it's free.
0: It's It's right there. You could do it any day, right? And I think that it's also something that helps bring us into... I'm not sure quite the right way to say this, Dad, and you're obviously a much more practiced person in this arena than I am, so you could jump in here if you want to, but something that really brings us into relationship with a feeling of right now, like present moment awareness is often driven initially by an awareness just of the breath. Probably when you first said the word, breathe, Jason, a second ago, everybody who was listening went, oh yeah, I'm doing that right now in a different kind of way, right? And so it brings you into that immediacy with the moment that I think also drives a lot of these other pursuits that we might have, these other goals that we might have. It takes us away from the kind of mind-wandering or ruminatory processes that can pull us away from what we actually want to be pursuing in a positive way. So you you just see all these positive downstream effects from it.
2: It is the ultimate real-time tool.
1: There are probably maybe five things that popped out for me, Jason, in my journey through brain science over the last 20, 30 years. And one of the most practical things I've come across is the fact that, as people track internal sensations in their body that engages the insula, this really important part of the brain, and acts like a kind of circuit breaker on the default mode network, which is where people go when they're ruminating negatively. That was a lot of brain talk in one sentence. (laughs) It means that when people breathe consciously, including exactly as you said, through their nose, it tends to draw them immediately into the internal sensations of the air moving through the airway, down into their lungs, the sense of the diaphragm dropping as they inhale, the chest expanding, internal sensation, internal sensation, internal sensation, then the outflow, et cetera, just over the course of a single breath. And that fundamental process of tuning into internal sensations just has tremendous benefits neurologically. Snaps you out of taking life so personally, draws you into the bigger picture, pulls you into the present. You're no longer doing mental time travel, past and future. And it really also stabilizes the sense of basic all rightness. You're okay right now. You're basically all right right now, which is especially useful if people are at all prone to anxiety because there's this reassuring information going on being, still here, still breathing.
0: Is there a particular exercise that you use yourself, Jason?
2: Yes. there. For me in, in the book, we go through all of them, box breathing, four, seven, eight, et cetera. I love that at our daughter's school, they learn box breathing. It's one of the reasons why I love their school. She's six years old, they taught her box breathing, and she does the little she she does draws the box with her hands. Okay. So for people who don't know that, what's box breathing? So essentially it's the four, four, you could do four, four, five, seven. You could kind of pick the count, although there's some debate around that, but essentially it's it's an inhale, hold, exhale, hold, and you, and you keep on doing even time, that, even yeah. times. For me personally, I am a huge fan of the inhale for two, exhale for four. That kind of always brings me back.
1: Oh, yeah. And you you probably know that on exhalation, that involves the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system, which naturally slows the heart rate. So extending the exhalation really effective. Yeah.
0: So going through the cake in terms of what's acceptable or accessible to everyone, also maybe what's acceptable to everybody, but certainly what's accessible to everybody. So sleep, everybody sleeps, we all have to sleep and you focus on sleep as the second layer of it. Of course, sleep and breathing have some interplay with each other. Just in general, getting more high-quality sleep, there's an enormous sleep deficit in the United States. It's something that's extremely well-studied, and you have a couple of like very basic tips associated with this. And I was wondering if you could kind of move people through it.
2: Sure, and this is one my wife, Colleen, has really struggled with her sleep, and she has to work quite hard on her sleep. I think something that's worked for her, and I'll walk through some of the best practices, is she's become okay with the fact that she's never going to be a fantastic sleeper. And some of the performance anxiety with regards to sleep, she doesn't necessarily experience. And that's a real thing. In terms of me on the other hand, I, I am generally a good sleeper. With all that said, we do have some best practices. And i also share a practice that everyone, every expert says not to do, but it brings us joy. And that's watch TV before bed every night. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're mindful about what we watch. Sure. But we do, and it brings us joy. And I think that's also people need to identify the things they really enjoy in life and build them in. And for us, that's watching Netflix. And, you know, currently that's Succession, and we're catching up with the Formula One series. Love it. Jason, I'm
0: going to share a quick story here, and I'm going to totally throw some friends of mine who might even listen to this episode under the bus. And that's that I have two friends, and recently one of them was talking about some difficulties that they had falling asleep. And as we asked, OK, well, like, what are you doing around your sleeping? And their partner was just shaking their head. And she was like, well, you know, I've been watching a lot of Law & Order SVU before I fall asleep at night and I just have these terrible nightmares, like every you know she was talking about these nightmares that she was experiencing and then was like, "Oh, I'm watching this thing that is probably triggering me into that just a little bit. so just a note to be conscious about the kind of media you're consuming before you fall asleep
2: That's a great point there There are certain shows where we put it on, <laughs> I'm like, can't do it, can't do it
0: yeah, not for me, <laughs> not, not for, for me, me for sure
2: but in terms of best practices, one is temperature, you know try to have your room cool ideally sixty five. That's a big one. When you do go to bed, make sure you kind of turn off all your lights, devices and you want to be as dark as possible. Meal timing, size of meal and alcohol. Those are real big ones. You ideally want at least three hours between your last meal and bed. And the heavier the meal that is, you're probably going to have a little bit more difficulty falling asleep and will affect quality of sleep. And same goes with alcohol. Look, I I think alcohol is a big topic. I still say if you haven't started to drink, then If you don't drink, don't start. But if you do enjoy a drink, enjoy a drink, have a good one, make sure it counts. Uh, But you need, you you know, but you have to be mindful about consumption in terms of timing with bedtime because alcohol does affect your sleep. And so those are kind of the, the big ones, I would say, to start with.
0: Two other points just to name that I've heard other people, other experts, including explicitly Andrew Huberman has really talked about this a lot very prominently. Natural light exposure after waking up is a really good one just for your circadian rhythm. And then also the flip side of that, try to have a relatively consistent bedtime if you can. And this is the one that I am easily the worst at. I am awful at that one. So, hey, don't follow my example. If you can try to have a slightly more consistent bedtime.
2: Well, I'm glad you brought up puberty in the natural light because that's actually a bigger point I forgot. And it's this idea that sleep starts the moment you wake up. Yeah. If you think... You're just going to turn on great sleep at 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. or 11 p.m. Whatever it is you're ready to go to bed, you are wrong. It starts in the morning. Sunlight's critical. It starts with your day. You've got to find your rituals. You've got to incorporate all those best practices so you are set up for success. Another big one is working out. If you work out and you work out hard, do it earlier in the day. Don't do it late at night. That's going to affect your sleep. Good sleep hygiene starts in the morning. You can't just turn it on when you're ready.
0: And what I think underpins what you're saying there, Jason, is the whole notion of lifestyle change,
2: the idea of am I
0: taking on an activity or am I pursuing a different view of myself or a different view of my behavior altogether? This gets a little bit to keep on shouting out people whose work I liked, the work of James Clear with identity based habits and things like that in the book Atomic Habits. He was the person to really make this idea famous, but it's existed for a pretty long time before he wrote the book, which is just that, in general, the habits that we have, the behaviors that we have, view or flow from the view of ourselves that we have as people. And so if we're able to change our view of ourselves, our behavior naturally flows from that. So if you have a self-concept that underpins what you're doing, as somebody who struggles to sleep or goes to bed late at night and doesn't wake up on time, whatever it is, whatever your, your self-concept is, you can actually work to change these underlying views of yourself from which your behavior can derive. Absolutely. Well, just to
1: play with that, if if it's okay, Jason, when you were a kid or a young adult, did you have the identity of someone who was really healthy and marinating and well-being?
2: Yes and no. So I'm an athlete. I played basketball in college. I played basketball at Columbia. When I was a kid. I played every sport. And so on one hand, I was athletic. On the other hand, come late high school and college, I drank absolutely way too much. My junior year in high school, I had a third degree sprain in my right ankle. And it was worse than a break. And I lost a step and I didn't have a step to lose. Put it that way. Yes. And I had a coach at the time who was mentally abusive. I put on a lot of weight and he would hurl the, the fat jokes. And it, it was just, it was just, it was ter- terrible, terrible. And it was really tough for me. Yeah. And I think what had happened is I realized that there was more to, more than basketball and I wanted to have a good time and probably too good of a time. I started to drink, too much. I lived in a town where that was part of the culture. I grew up in Manhasset, Long Island. There's a Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Tender Bar, written by J.R. Moringer. It's about the town I grew up in. I think he starts off the book by saying Manhasset's about lacrosse, the Catholic church, and alcohol. Mm. There was a liquor store in town where people would come in with like shopping carts, like yeah. Tuesday mm. afternoon. Shortly after, my father suddenly died of a heart attack. That's also a big why of me the book quick story there is you know i'm 48 i have two little girls age six and three my father died of heart disease at 47 my paternal oh. grandfather died of heart disease at 49 excuse me paternal grandfather cancer 44 maternal grandfather heart disease 49 so the men in mm. my family have terrible track records with longevity and i'm determined to change that i believe in epigenetics We have the ability to turn off and turn on the right and wrong genes so that that stops with me so coming back to that, my father died. I think I lost my love for basketball. And, and really, so I, you know, to get to your question, was I healthy or not? On one hand, I'm a Division I college athlete. And on the other hand, I am drinking excessively, probably dealing with the sudden, well, not probably, dealing with the sudden loss of my father, which that was my coping mechanism, I think, for, for years. So I straddled both. I got through college. I no longer, I don't have an alcohol problem. So I think I've, I've lived both. I don't know if that was what you were getting at, but that's what I have. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I appreciate that, Jason,
2: really. And just feeling the
1: poignance of it all and the impact on you. And and even just maybe haunting is not exactly the right word, but just recognizing the health risks we each carry in different ways genetically and then how to manage that. So I, I really appreciate that. And I'm kind of wondering, given the straddling, we got a lot of metaphors going here. It's it's cool. <laughs> how did you gradually shift your center of gravity in terms of your identity as a person? Picking up on Forest Point from Atomic Habits, how did you gradually shift your center of gravity so that more and more of the weight, the tipping point, was on identity as someone with well being?
2: You know, it was a process, and it was a long one. After. College after basketball, I was an equities trader. And I, let's rewind back to 1998. If you were graduating from Columbia in 1998, you were an athlete. There was, you know, I'm going to be a lawyer, go to law school, be a doctor, go to medical school, maybe a consultant. I had grades for neither. I barely graduated. So I went to Wall Street. That's where you go when you go to Ivy League school and barely graduate. So I was an equities trader. <laughs> and I had a lot of college debt to pay off. And I found myself, I think the shift started to occur for me again around 9-11. I was in New York when 9-11 happened a few blocks away. And that had a profound impact on me like many New Yorkers. And I just started looking and I ended up leaving, becoming an entrepreneur. And ultimately it was a 10-year journey to Mind body green. And what ultimately led me to reframe how I viewed well-being, it was the fact that I almost had back surgery. I found myself in 2008, was part of another startup that wasn't doing well. And I found myself flying over hundred thousand miles domestic. I'm six foot seven. So me in a coach seat is not good for me or the person in front of me. It was, so the, the, the flying, the seating arrangement, the stress and an old basketball injury led to two extruded discs in my lower back Uh, excruciating sciatica in my right leg. I couldn't walk. It was terrible. And walking is like one of my favorite things to do walking uh, brings me tremendous joy. Went to a doctor said, you need back surgery and I have nothing against surgery, but the success rates with back surgery, are not good. It's not a second opinion. That doctor said the same thing. He also suggested cortisol shots. I tried that didn't work. And he said, you know what? Maybe some yoga or therapy can help. I said, okay. So I started with some light yoga, started to feel better. Over the course of six months, I went from couldn't walk to being completely healed. To this day, I've never had back surgery. And so for me, that was like a complete shift that kind of happened overnight, but it was, it was a 10-year process in that I think my view prior was if you look good in the mirror, you were good. Mm-hmm. And clearly, I was broken. I was broken spiritually, physically. My idea of nutrition back then was steak and martinis at the Palm Steakhouse. I consumed so much. My face is on the wall. There's a character showed my face in Midtown Manhattan next to Adam Sandler and Joe Namath. You could see what I look like at 27.
1: You're in good company, I guess.
2: Great company. People, people go in there all the time and say, who the hell is that guy next to Tristan? Adam well, You know, he's Jason. He just ate here enough. just ate here enough. That's... But... There was a lot wrong. And, I, and again, you got to rewind to the time. I think the word, the word wellness was equated with the spa. And anything out there that was a little bit holistic was a little bit too new agey. I think to the choir people who lived in the west side of LA or the Mission or Boulder or Brooklyn and really didn't, I think, appeal to the, the rest, of, rest of the world. And it was through that experience where it was just became crystal clear to me where true well-being. It wasn't about the you know the five-minute abs or this crazy new age treatment. It, it was really this blend of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being. My Buddy Green, one word, not three. And that was that was the birth of My Buddy Green in two thousand nine. But it was this process for me. Mm-hmm. It really started, I think, in 01, where in 01, after 9 11, I, I was searching. Yeah, I knew I wanted to do something else. I knew I wanted to have a life where there was greater purpose, but I didn't know what. And I didn't find it to 09. And you know what? I didn't even know my buddy Green was going to work until 2013 when Colleen joined, when we first started to actually have revenue. Because the first three years, we were just married. I worked for free. Colleen supported us. It was extraordinarily stressful. So I don't know if that's, you got a lot there. Well, I'm grateful for it. Really, quite frankly,
1: grateful.
0: We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms without addressing many of the underlying causes. One skin's os one line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary os one peptide. The os one peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their os one face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. A couple things
1: stand out for me, maybe to ask you a little further about if it's okay. Sure.
0: One is that
1: there's this moment for many people where they hit bottom in terms of Alcoholics Anonymous say, or there's just a moment of truth where they suddenly start to realize something, and then maybe they build on that moment. Maybe 1% of them finally knows something for sure. And then they build on that and it's 10%, 20%, finally 51% and it starts to be a tipping point. And I think a lot of the issue for people, I say this as also a long-time therapist, is they don't honor that knowing. Maybe because other people are trying to talk them out of it or they don't feel they have the right to stand up for themselves in terms of that inner knowing or it gets lost in all these other voices. But it becomes so important to just kind of honor that inner knowing like, no, I want to live into my 50s unlike my dad and my grandfathers. I want that. I care about that. I need to do certain things differently to have that. That's kind of like a sacredness to it. And then the other thing related to that is that balance or shift from moving away from the negative toward the positive. You know, moving away from, I don't want to have sciatica. You know, I don't want to die young. God, all right, fine. That's different from moving toward well-being per se. And the feeling of well-being, that good feeling inside yourself, and I'm I'm kind of tracking both of those for you in your yeah. story here.
2: And, and something Colleen and I have discussed. So we recently moved to Miami, and we, we know a lot of people in New York and L.A. and other major cities who decide to move. And for us, the fundamental question, and I think this is an important one, what you're hitting at. For us, we were moving towards something. Yes, we were moving toward. My, we love this place. We, we, why are we in Miami? One, I mentioned my kid's school. We fell in love with the school here. Colleen and I love the warmth. We love the culture here, the diversity, the energy. Colleen loves the beach, the ocean. I do too. So we're moving towards something. We have other friends who were just like, I need to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, It felt yeah. like they were running away from something, not running toward.
0: Very different experience, yeah.
2: Yeah, and some of those people move a number of times. And I don't think they're still happy where they are. And I think in life that, look, there is sometimes something very powerful, let's say in a relationship, you know, like I need to get out of this. Sure. But I also believe in this process, you know, I go back to me in 2001, I I knew I had to take a step. And I think sometimes the mistake people make is they feel like they need to plan out all the steps. They need to know exactly where I'm going to get to A and B and it's very linear. I think it's usually not linear and there's a lot of zigzagging. Mm -hmm. And the, the path may be a little bit more shaky than what you, but you have to still take that first step and have the faith.
1: And what do you think about the part of really, really honoring a kind of knowing inside yourself and really listening to it? The honoring of that knowing as a real turning point for people is actually really important.
2: I agree. And I, I think purpose, there's a reason why our last chapter in the book is something bigger. We we do think it's it's paramount, and in the book we go through questions one can ask yourself because I think that that is difficult. I think it's very easy, you know. There's the famous Steve Jobs Jobs line: "Connect the dots, looking backwards, but not forwards." And I think sometimes asking yourself those questions it's difficult, and I mm-hmm. think you know so much this conversation around health and well being. Look, I think anyone listening is probably they, they know if they're not. Eating as well as they could. They know if they're not exercising as much, but I think it's a lot harder to know. Maybe I'm emotionally unwell right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe I, you know, I'm not the friend I need to be. Maybe I can't call someone at, at midnight if something went really wrong. And I got to ask myself some hard questions. Or, you know, why am I getting out of the bed in the morning? Am I useful and relevant? And these are this is harder work. And I would argue that meaningful, real connection and having purpose and a connection to spirituality is more important than all the other things. Maybe a version of this that stands
0: out to me that I've been thinking about a lot recently is pursuit orientation versus fleeing orientation. And what do you feel like inside of yourself? That was something that I said back toward the beginning of the conversation. And Man, I think that just reflecting personally, a lot of my life, I was in some combination of a flight movement, a movement away from something, coupled with a pretty harsh internalized critic that was kind of beating me in that direction, right? I was running away, in a sense, from my own self-criticism. I was being pushed in a direction by it. And I think that that's a lot of people's experience. In the mm-hmm. whole wellness world, and also to an extent in the well-being world as well, where they're running away from something, and the thing that they're running away from is themselves. To an extent, it is the part of themselves that is beating them down in that way.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you empathize, empathize with that, Jason, but that just really stands out to me.
2: I think you know, take a step back. I think that a lot of people have come to this world where maybe they had a condition that their doctor just totally gaslit them, looked at them and said, you know, you're crazy, you're fine. And let's say they changed their diet and they are totally fine. And let's say that uh, a diet is, you know, carnivore, for example, which I don't condone, but I'll just use it to prove a point. (laughs) And the carnivore diet saves them from, from pain and discomfort and GI distress. And that diet quickly becomes something they self-identify with. And if that diet is perhaps challenged, people often feel attacked. Hmm. And I think also whether it's a diet or a modality, I understand how people get there, but I think it can quickly get to tribalism where if you challenge My modality, you're challenging who I am as a person and it quickly gets to a place which is unproductive and just another form of addiction and where there's a complete lack of curiosity or empathy and unwillingness Mm -hmm. to have any type of informed, reasonable debate or discussion, which is another big problem.
0: Yeah. And so I think a lot about what it is for me and what it might be for other people to move toward that pursuit orientation where the thing you're pursuing isn't something dogmatic, kind of like you're speaking to there, Jason. It's not, you know, the the one true diet on the top of the hill or the one true exercise modality. You know, people make a lot of jokes about CrossFit as the, you know, the church of CrossFit, if you want to kind of put it that way. Sure. But rather an overall orientation, a pursuit of whether that's some higher purpose. It's a more joyful version of who you are, something that really brings meaning to your life. I know that in the book, you'd certainly focus on environmentalism a fair amount, but that could be many things that draw somebody into that sense of meaning. You know, I just think that's a really powerful intervention for people, and positioning it as an intervention is also a really interesting way to look at it.
2: Yeah, I'm a big believer in the why.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's maybe uh, a you know, simpler way to put it. What's your why? I think about yeah. that question. What's your why?
2: Yeah. You know, so for me, it does, it, it starts with the longevity conversation. For me personally, it's very important. And, But I don't think I'm alone. You know, I've got my family history. Yeah. Every, everyone's got a family history. And I think about where we are. We, we've advanced so far with the science and the technology and the gadgets and the, and the studies and the things. And on one hand, it's unattainable. And it's about the frosting. And on the other mm-hmm. hand, it's about VO2 max and measuring lactate and all these things I can't do. To me, that's not okay. And we believe that we can get you 80% there. We can get you 80% there and you can have a feeling of joy along the way. And you mm-hmm. don't have to be everything and you don't have to be perfect. And there's, it's not necessary to, to feel any guilt or shame. It's doable mm-hmm. and we can help you get there. I think yeah. that that's my why. It can be joyful. Mm. And, you know, so much of, you know, if we, we go back to the uh, extremes mm. in this space, I think there are a lot of parallels between politics and, and health and wellness right now. To illustrate that point, one of my favorite statistics, not my favorite, least favorite statistics from the book Uh, There's a study out of the University of Pennsylvania, Wharton, they analyzed the most emailed articles in the New York Times. Essentially, like this is the New York Times, the most emailed list, most viral, well-read articles in the world. They classified these articles by emotion. The top three were anxiety, awe, and anger. Anger was number one. Anger increased virality by 34%. So if you just sit with that for a moment, okay, if an article... I Read an article and it causes me angry, it's 34% more likely to be one of the most widely read articles. It's going to get more, more reads, more watches, or listens, clicks, engagement, revenue. And so I think a lot of the health and well being conversation has gone here too, where we're incentivized to have extreme points of view that incite anger. And that's another big why for me, where we do believe balance is possible that you can live a happy, healthy, and long life and be joyful along the way.
0: Yeah. What I think is running underneath a lot of what we're talking about today is the big question in most well-being-oriented communities, which is how do you support people in making good changes? Because good changes sometimes have some pain and suffering at the front end that... Is then balanced by a lot of gain on the back end, right? And one of the things that you talk about in the book is essentially good stress, which is sometimes called hormetic stress. It's a kind of stress on the body that leads to positive adaptation. And the example that you use in that chapter is cold exposure. It's just one example. It's an interesting example of it. There are a lot of forms of hormetic stress and like positive change stress. But it's pretty hard to talk people into taking a taking a cold shower at the start of the morning or the first time that you start your exercise routine, whatever it is. You know, it's it's hard to talk people into it. So whether it's in your own life or just consuming a lot of content in this world and creating a lot of content in this world, Jason,
2: what have you really seen it helps people embrace that good change? So th- this is a good one to talk about for a couple of reasons. One, in terms of low cost, high impact, cold showers or cold plunges, if you have the resources, you know, the the science is developing, it's very strong. And this idea of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is very accurate. In terms of hormesis, these short bursts of stress, not
0: chronic stress, short bursts of manageable stress. Yeah,
2: exactly. Like we're not talking about financial hardship, unsustainable workload. And so these, you know, short intermittent stressors, like jumping into cold shower or cold water for a minute, can produce stress resilience. You've had Dr. Alyssa Apple on your show as well. She's a pioneer in the space. She believes that these intermittent stressors can help us reverse the harmful changes associated with long-term chronic stress and emotional distress mm-hmm. and do things that can help recovery and possibly rejuvenation of cells and tissues. So like th- this is real. And, and it's in terms of time and effort, Dr. Susanna Schoberg, who's also incredibly well-researched in this space recommends 30 to 90 seconds of shower to get started. But I also think this is important because the science is really strong and this works. I don't do it because I don't like it. It does not bring, yeah. me, jo- does not bring me joy. <laughs> it doesn't. So I don't do it. I will find other things to do. And I think there's this notion there, if something works and, it, and it's very trendy and you have to do it. If you don't do it, you're not doing all the things. This does not bring me joy. I don't do it.
0: Well, hearing that will bring my partner, Elizabeth, a lot of joy, <laughs> Jason, because that girl hates a cold shower. Oh my God.
1: And I, I hate cold showers too. So what do you do instead?
2: If there's a, I don't even like going in the pool if it's like somewhat cold with, with our tins. <laughs> yeah. So sure, maybe I, I in just a different feel, domain though. Yeah. So in terms of hormetic stressors, like I, I just really don't do any What about intense exercise? Does that count? I do do, do high. So look, I, I do somewhat, I'd say high intensity interval training. One could say taking the stairs. So if you take a step back, people will talk about zone two training and you can do a fancy test to really understand if you're in zone two training. But essentially what that is for one to know is listening is, are you slightly out of breath doing something? You can, you can hold a conversation, but it's difficult. So how do I get there? I can take the stairs or if I, go to the, if I go to the gym or if I'm doing push-ups or sit-ups, I just do them really quick or I can walk really fast. So that that's also a hermetic stressor. But I think you don't have to do everything. And I do yeah. think there's pressure in this space to do all the things and you don't have to. And if you don't like it, don't do it. I cannot help but ask, of course, because you know I'm a
1: therapist. I think for many, many people, they would much rather jump into an Arctic ocean than talk with another person in a vulnerable way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or yeah. Or engage in public speaking. But yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just think for Forrest and I, you know, we have a line, you know, risk the dreaded experience. And there's something about that process of if it's not going to be a cold plunge, some form in your life where you are moving outside of your comfort zone. You're moving past the invisible bars of your cage, in effect, of what your current window of tolerance is. And where that's often found a lot is vulnerable, real-time, authentic, you know, openness to the next step with someone that may not be easy for you.
2: I'll get vulnerable rather than jump in the the cold tundra any day of the week and twice on Sunday. <laughs>
1: that's
0: good stuff. I mean, I, I just think that what what stands out to me over and over again from this, Jason, and we're moving toward an end here, is is a couple of things. First, find the thing that works for you. Is what you're kind of highlighting here toward the end. You know, if you're not a cold shower person, that's totally fine. If you're not a run-up-the-stairs person, that's totally fine. It's about that joyful pursuit, finding the thing that works for you. And then attach that that whole question that you raised around finding your why and and finding one that's meaningful for you and one that's going to draw you toward the things that are good for you, the things that feel good, as opposed to that process of like browbeating that can often be involved in the whole wellness space where you're being harshly driven, whether it's by the internal sense of something or it's by all of the messaging that we receive externally through social media, your uh, your favorite influencer, you know, whatever it might be, that's kind of beating you towards something that doesn't actually bring you joy. And in a very crowded wellness space, certainly, but also a fairly crowded well-being space, I'm just really glad that those are some of the messages that you're putting forward here. Because I just think that like, it's so easy to get sucked into the harsh pursuit of things that we don't actually care about.
2: Agreed. Well said.
0: I loved the part of the book that's about connection with everything.
1: I have a background in rock climbing and doing a lot of stuff in wilderness over the years. And for me, hormetic stress is uh, being in those situations in which you're physically safe in an ultimate way. You're not free soloing El Cap, but it sure does not feel that way. It feels scary as heck. And every monkey cell in your body wants to get out of there, but you keep going up. You know, that that has a certain kind of positive stress. So I, I wanted to ask you about what you have found and what you experience even in your own life about the ways in which feeling connected to the wild, maybe it's just simply looking up to the sky as a factor of well being.
2: To me at the highest level, it's just clear we're not a closed system. We're open to the world, we bring it inside, what we eat, what we drink what we breathe. And that, you know, when you understand that on an intellectual, emotional, and a spiritual level, I think you have a whole new appreciation for life and the planet. And that's why my buddy green is one word, not three. It is all connected.
0: That's great. What a beautiful way to end. Yeah. Jason, again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today before we get out of here is there of course we've mentioned the website mind body green a number of times you also have the mind body green podcast if you like being well i'm sure that you will love that uh we were talking before we started recording that i think that we've got like 20 percent guest overlap or something like that so a lot of good people on both feeds and again the book is the joy of well-being a practical guide to a happy healthy and long life
2: thank you so much for having me and thanks for thoughtful questions
0: I really enjoyed today's conversation with Jason Wachup, the founder and co-CEO of Mind Body Green. And it's always kind of great when a conversation goes in a really different direction than I expected to. Going into today's recording, I prepped all of this information related to the eight sections of Jason's new book, That's The Joy of Well-Being, A Practical Guide to a Happy, Healthy, and Long Life. And we did talk a little bit about that. In particular, we talked about the importance of breathing properly, which, hey, important for us all, and sleeping properly, also important for us all. But then we spent a lot of the conversation talking about well-being generally, and what does it really mean to pursue well-being in a in a joyful way, as opposed to being beaten toward it by these self-critical voices inside of us or by the pressures of society at large, or by feeling like you should be doing what your favorite social media influencer is doing these days. And one of the things that I really appreciated about our conversation and about also the book and Jason's work in general is just the importance that is placed on sustainability. What can we actually accomplish realistically in the course of our lives? What are the interventions that we're going to get the most bang for our buck from? What can we pursue day after day after day, in a way that feels really joyful for us. And a great example of that was toward the end of the conversation, where my dad asked Jason about hormetic stress, which is a section in the book. And this is a section that focuses, uh, uses cold exposure as an example. And cold exposure is interesting. There's some early research on it. We're still very much in the early stages. But the research that is there is fairly promising. And so my dad asked, well, Jason, you say that like you don't really like doing cold exposure, so how do you do it? How do you develop some hormetic stress in a way that feels good for you and feels joyful for you? And Jason was like, well, to be honest, Rick, I just don't do it. I get that it's good for me, but I just don't do it because it's not what I want to be doing. I don't find joy in it. And if I could like frame a response from a guest and put it behind me, just to like hang over all of our podcast episodes, it might be that response. We're not going to do everything. It's okay. It is okay to find the two or three things that you think are going to really help you out in the course of your life and to pursue those things thoughtfully and to look at a lot of other stuff out there in the wellness world and go, you know, this just isn't for me. That doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you not thoughtful. It doesn't make you somebody who doesn't care. It makes you somebody who has given a a considered look at a bunch of different stuff and gone, you know, nah. And so the question becomes again and again, what can we do? And what can we do in a thoughtful and deliberate way? What will give us some value that we're pretty darn sure of? And what can we do simply and without stressing about it? And with having the pursuit of well-being be something that adds to our life as opposed to takes away from it. And so I went through Jason's book, and just as it tried to boil a lot of things down, I tried to boil it down. And here are a couple of the key recommendations from it that I think that most people can implement in at least some way in the course of their life and probably get some value from. And hey, as I go through this list, if you hear me say things and you're just like, "Nah, not for me, great. More power to you. Find the half of them that you think you can do sustainably and commit to them. And don't worry about the other half. So here they are. First, focus on making changes that are sustainable. And a major indicator of sustainability is if they have a feeling of joy associated with them, or at least a motivational purpose that feels joyful in some way. We are being drawn toward our higher purposes rather than running away from all of our various fears. Second, real simply, try to breathe through your nose. I am a chronic mouth breather. This is really hard for me. That said, it is a low cost intervention that almost anyone can pursue. And I'm going to try to be more disciplined about it in my life as well. Third, if you can, sleep more. If you can't, emphasize sleep quality. Frame it as an important activity in your life. Just as you would frame having social interactions with other people, or doing well at your job, or getting enough good food, whatever it is, sleep is an equally important activity. Finally, a simple point here about nutrition, and this is something that I haven't talked about on the podcast very much, but you might have noticed, if you listen to the podcast regularly, that we rarely talk about diet and nutrition on the show. And this is for a couple of reasons. For starters, neither Rick nor I are a dietitian or somebody else with a strong professional background in that kind of work. So we want to be really careful about how we position our voices as experts because we are simply not experts in that field. And then second, this whole topic is both unbelievably complicated and incredibly loaded for many people. It's loaded emotionally. I think that our whole discourse around diet and exercise is often just unbelievably toxic online. It can be just incredibly shame-inducing and punishing for people to interact with these topics. And it's just a whole stew, and the stew is made even more complicated by the fact that A, we're very early in the science here, truth be told, which is one of the reasons that you see fad diets appear and disappear like clockwork. And then second, the diet industry in the United States is a $60 billion a year industry. And most of the good research on the topic suggests that diets, broadly speaking, and this is separated from from lifestyle change and long-term things like that, Diets basically don't work. When they do cause people to lose weight, they lose a relatively small amount of weight for a relatively short period of time. And then one of the big problems here is that the whole discourse on healthy eating frames it as being based on individual choice. Just make healthier choices, healthier choices, healthier choices. You hear that phrase over and over again. And I think that that is a massive misrepresentation of what's going on here. You can make a serious argument, and I'm inclined to make it, and it's an argument that's been made by people who know a lot more about this territory than I do, that our, pretty much our entire economic system is based on the availability of cheap and fast calories, like those found in the highly processed foods that are the most unhealthy for us. It is simply not economically viable for many people in the United States to eat in a healthy manner. I'll say that again it is not economically viable for many people to eat in a healthy and sustaining manner. And this is before we get into all the stuff with food deserts and the advertising industry and the ways in which the the food lobby has insinuated itself into the government. It's just, it's all, it's it's a mess out there is my point. So here is the one piece, the single piece of nutritional advice that I'm going to offer on this podcast, maybe ever, we'll see, we'll see where it goes, but maybe ever. If it's available, try to eat real food. That is the one thing that you will hear 99% of people in the nutritional space talk about. If it's available, eat real food. And again, this is about, is that food available? Do you have the time to prepare it? Do you have the money to purchase it? These are big, big questions that are not just about individual choice. They are completely tied into our broader social and economic systems. So that rather lengthy aside that I was not really expecting to talk about today, aside, let's get back to my, what was supposed to be a very simple list of things. Regularly move your body in a way that feels good to you, so you'll keep on doing it. And hey, if you can, again, if it's available to you, if it's available to your body, if it feels good, there's a lot of research that suggests that some form of strength-oriented training is really good for people. Sixth, exit your comfort zone regularly. Expose yourself to short-term bursts of manageable stress. One way to do this, take a cold shower for 60 seconds. I hate cold showers. I'm probably not going to take a cold shower, but I can find other ways to push my body just toward the edge of its comfort zone, not freaking myself out, not totally exiting my window of tolerance. Just play around at the edges there and see if you can find some enjoyment in that. Seventh, appreciate that we are small pieces of a larger whole. However you relate to that phrase, maybe that larger whole is just your social group or your family or uh, your cultural background. Whatever that larger whole means to you, understand that you're just one piece of it. And if you can, rather than that making you feel small, support yourself in feeling connected by that and seek social connection with other people. That's the eighth point even if you are a mega introvert, do what you can to be in relationship with others. Then finally, ninth, find your why. What gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in this broader pursuit of a happy, healthy, joyful life? Whatever it is for you, find something that, again, you can have that pursuit orientation with something that you feel drawn toward, like you're going after, like you're interested in pursuing, as a kind of natural oppositional force, a natural antidote to all of the ways in life that is very normal for people to feel beaten down by their circumstances or what's happening to them, or harshly punished by a voice inside of them that is driving them towards something mercilessly. And that's a distinction I'm really going to take away from this conversation. So a slightly longer outro to this one than normal. Again, we talked to Jason Wachub and his new book is The Joy of Wellbeing, A Practical Guide to a Happy, Healthy, and Long Life. If you would like to find a link to it, you can find that in the description of today's episode. And this is the time when I remind you to subscribe to the show if you've been following it for a while. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and receive a variety of bonuses in return. So until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.